Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 31st. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll begin with today's mini editorial, which is written by Al Shalton of Sioux Center. And Al writes, I read with great interest the front page article about the state limiting the lengths of trains in Iowa. If Representative Segrist is getting upset waiting for a train to pass, it will be interesting to see how he handles standing in line and having to wait for his electric car to be charged. Again, this was written by Al Shalton of Sioux Center, Iowa. And for the Siouxland five-day forecast, today is going to be sunny with a high of 18 and a low tonight of 2. Wednesday will be not quite as cold and still have plenty of sunshine with a high of 27 and a low of 0. Thursday will be mostly sunny and it will be a little bit colder at, with a high of 20 with, and a low of minus 8. And Friday again will be sunny and with a high of 18 and a low of 15. And then Saturday is not as cold and it will have some clouds with a high of 37 and a low of 23. And our first front page story headline is OVG 360 looking for new general manager for Tyson Events Center. OVG 360 is searching for a new general manager to oversee day-to-day -day operations at Sioux City's Tyson Events Center. Rick Hans, OVG 360 Senior Vice President, confirmed that Tim Savona, who has been the general manager since February of 2019, has accepted a position with another company but will remain in the industry. He is going to go to a bigger building, almost double the size, so he's growing in the industry, Hans said. You grow in this company and in this industry. Savona told the Journal Monday that he's going to Pinnacle Bank Arena in Lincoln, Nebraska, and his last day will be February 10th. Pinnacle Bank Arena is a 15,500-seat multi-purpose arena, which is owned by the City of Lincoln and managed by ASM Global. It's been an honor and a privilege to serve this community. Our team of 20 full-time staff pretty much remains intact. We will continue to evolve and grow and make sure everyone is serviced, Savona said. Savona said Enzo Caranati, who served as Assistant General Manager and Director of Marketing at the Tyson, departed a few weeks ago for a General Manager position at the Pavilion at Star Lake, an amphitheater west of Pittsburgh that is owned and operated by Live Nation. Emily Vondrak, who worked under Caranati, has already assumed his position. Also leaving Sioux City is Karenanti's wife, Megan, but she is staying with OVG 360 and is being promoted from her role as Director of Corporate Partnerships, according to Hans. Hans said OVG 360 will have a temporary general manager come into the Tyson until the right person is found. He said the search could take a, a month or a couple of months. He said the job has been posted and that quite a few applicants have already applied. I think it's important to know that because we're such a big company in this industry, we're not going to miss a beat here, Hans said. We're going to stay on top of things. We're going to continue to book it. We're going to continue to build on success that we have had in the last five years. Last August, in a split decision, the Sioux City Council agreed to extend the city's current agreement with OVG 360 for the management and operation of the Tyson and Orpheum Theater for a duration of five years and potentially another five years after that. OV 360 
formerly Spectra, took over booking, marketing, staffing, and food and beverage service at the Tyson and the Orpheum Theater on January 1, 2018, after the council voted to privatize Tyson's operations. The 10,000-seat Tyson had been owned and run by the city since it opened in 2003. The Orpheum is independently owned and jointly operated with the city. Last February, Oakview Group announced that it had rebanded rebranded its OVG Facilities Division and its Spectra acquisition as OVG 360. OVG acquired Spectra in November of 2021. Cities plead for delay in fixing erroneous tax formula. Representatives for Iowa cities, counties, school districts, and community colleges urged lawmakers Monday to delay for a year changing the property tax rollback rate for residential properties to fix an oversight from a previously passed property tax reform package. What would be an unexpected relief for taxpayers could mean local governments have to scramble to find money to support the public services they plan for the next budget year, mayors, city managers, and lobbyists told lawmakers. City, county, and school officials asked for the delay to allow local governments to absorb the financial blow with more time to plan for adjustments and soften the impact. Our members feel a little bit like Charlie Brown and the football, said Noah Tabor, a lobbyist representing the Metropolitan Coalition that represents Iowa's largest cities. The goalposts moved, Tabor said. The change proposed in this bill are logistically just unworkable. They go the wrong direction in terms of transparency. They force things to be rushed. We'd love to see a delay, kicking this out a year to allow this process to unfold in a more methodical manner. Lawmakers in 2013 passed a property tax cut package that, among other provisions, gradually lowered property taxes on multifamily residential units like apartments, nursing homes, mobile home parks, and manufactured home communities to where they would be taxed at the same rate as all residential properties by 2022. And in 2021, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law including multi-residential properties in the residential property class beginning in the 2022 assessment year for taxes due in fall 2023 and in spring 2024. The bill eliminated multi-residential as a classification. No corresponding changes, however, were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community colleges, and other taxing entities. The result, a higher percentage for residential property as a whole. The Iowa Department of Revenue did not catch the oversight until October, when staff calculated the property tax rollback rate. The rate is set annually by the department and is designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3%. If aggregate property values for them increase more than 3%, their taxable values are rolled back so the increase statewide is 3%. With former multi-residential erroneously included, staff calculated a rollback rate of 56.5% compared to what should be 54.6%. So the consequence is residential property owners will be paying a penalty or effectively a property tax increase, contrary to what lawmakers intended, said Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy. 
To fix the oversight, the governor's office filed a bill in the Senate that carves out all former multi-residential properties from calculating the property tax rollback rate for 2022 residential property tax assessments. But with local governments now in the throes of setting their budgets to take effect July 1st, the error by the state has thrown the process into disarray and may cause some to lose millions of dollars they had planned on or raise tax rates more than they wanted. Cities and counties are required to have their budgets approved and certified to the state and county auditor by March 31st. School districts are required to have their budgets set by April 15th. Dawson proposed amending the bill extending the budget deadline for cities and counties to finalize their budgets from March 13th to April 15th. But 603 of Iowa's 938 cities already have set their maximum level levy based on the rollback rate published by the state, said Daniel Stalder with the Iowa League of Cities. Iowa City could lose out on $1.7 million in planned revenue under the bill, according to city officials. Marion City Manager Ryan Waller told the Gazette he estimated the city could lose out on more than $437,000 of revenue. Tom Cope, a lobbyist representing Coralville and Cedar Falls, noted the only communication cities and counties received about the rollback rate was the 56.5% number published by the Department of Revenue in October. Every city finance person then started the budget process and reasonably relied on that number, Cope said, adding there was no correction from the department. As a result, the city of Coralville passed a resolution January 24th setting its maximum tax levy and a February 14th public hearing on its proposed 2024 fiscal year budget. They had gone through all of the hard work of the budgeting process, Cope said. All of those hard decisions have been made. Don't move the football. At least give us a year to plan. In the end, the subcommittee advanced the bill for further discussion by the Senate Ways and Means Committee. Senator Pam Jocum Democrat Dubuque declined to sign off. As much as we'd like lower property taxes, at the same time our citizens want safe communities, good schools, and quality of life back home, she said. So we're caught between a rock and a hard place in many ways and trying to navigate these waters right now. I certainly don't see a problem in trying to delay it, and personally I'd even like to see us maybe do some kind of backfill to help keep everybody whole in the meantime. Dawson acknowledged there should have been better communication by state officials. To, de to delay is likely a property tax increase for property tax owners, he said. However, this is why the property taxpayers struggle. Because of one formula calculation, all these taxing entities come here advocating to keep it higher, and the property taxpayer is wanting to know who is going to advocate for them. Now, our next story headline is Career Academy Students Get Hands-On Experience as Elementary Teachers. During lunchtime at Liberty Elementary School, fourth graders were peppering Roberto Alvarez Aurelio about classwork and his Super Bowl picks. If I had the choice between the Kansas City Chiefs or the Philadelphia Eagles, I'd go Chiefs all the way, he said diplomatically. But that's only because my favorite team, the Los Angeles Rams, isn't playing. Even though he has an easy rapport with the elementary kids, Alvarez Aurelio isn't a teacher. Instead, he is a West High School senior who is participating in a Sioux City Career Academy pathway. Several times a week, Alvarez Aurelio gains hands-on experience through a teaching internship. I'm there to help teachers out, he explained. Sometimes I'm there to answer a question a student has on an assignment. Other times I'm there just to help with a problem. Originally from Los Angeles, Alvarez Aurelio moved to Sioux City in the ninth grade. 
Valeria Alcala, on the other hand, grew up in Sioux City. Like Alvarez Aurelio, she is a West High senior participating in Career Academy's educational pathway as a student teacher. However, Alcala actually attended Liberty when she was younger. Becoming a student teacher at my old elementary school is strange, she said with a laugh. Many of my former teachers are still teaching class. Alcala's interest in education probably didn't surprise too many people. After all, she keeps herself busy in and out of the classroom. Active in her high school jazz band, marching band, and choir, Alcala also participates in the Spanish National Honor Society and serves as a sergeant of arms for West Student Council. Similar to Alcala, Alvarez Aurelia is also a high achiever. He is already a member of the Army National Guard and wants to attend Western Isle Tech Community College after basic training. Both Akela and Alvarez Aurelio said being bilingual has helped them as student teachers. We're able to bond with the students because we speak the same lang language while experiencing some of the same problems, Alvarez Aurelio said. There's nothing worse than not understanding a question due to language. This is an issue that Alcala knows firsthand. When I was in elementary school, there weren't very many Spanish-speaking instructors, she said. That's why I tried to be there for my kids. Another advantage they have over more traditional teachers is their youth. We're less intimidating than adult teachers, Alvarez Aurelio said. The kids know we're students just like they are. Alvarez Aurelio is considering studying education or psychology in college. Alcala said she'd like to pursue either education or social work. Still, Alcala is amazed at how inquisitive fourth graders can be. They seem really interested in everything and willing to ask a lot of questions, she said. Kids seem a lot more mature than when I was in elementary school. Bill would place limits on solar panel construction in Iowa. Energy companies and landowners would be limited on where they can set up solar panel arrays under a bill advanced in the Iowa Senate. The bill, Senate Study Bill 1077, would prohibit setting up a commercially owned solar field on land suitable for agriculture within 150 feet of a neighboring property or within 1,250 feet of a neighboring residence or livestock facility. A three-member subcommittee advanced the bill two to one, noting they intend to amend it. Senators Dan Zubach, Republican from Ryan, and Don Driscoll, Republican from Williamsburg, voted to advance it, while Senator Tony Bizzagnano, Democrat from Des Moines, did not. Zubach, the bill's floor manager, said it is intended to address multiple concerns landowners have about solar fields on neighboring properties. Some landowners don't like to see solar panels near their property, he said, and he also said tornadoes and windstorms could blow debris into an adjacent property. Most people that live around them don't like what they look like when they're used to looking at farmland and pastures, and they see this new industrial-style product coming into our farmland, he said. But by no means is this bill intended to shut down the solar industry. It's going to be a viable part of the state of Iowa, but it's about showing respect for everybody on each side of the fence. Zumbach introduced a similar bill last year that would have prohibited installing solar panel fields in highly productive farmland. The bill also included a 1,250-foot setback requirement from the closest property. Several power companies' environmental organizations are registered opposed to the legislation, and they said during the subcommittee meeting it would limit options for landowners and hurt the expansion of solar power. The bill will severely limit the land available for landowners who wish to monetize their land in this particular fashion, Alliance Energy lobbyist Ted Stopoulos said. 
Alliant Energy has both large utility scale and smaller user hosted solar projects. The company is aiming to generate 400 megawatts of solar energy by 2024, according to its website. As of 2022, there were 646 megawatts of solar energy installed across Iowa, according to the Solar Energy Industries Association. The state ranks 27th by the portion of its energy coming from solar power. Opponents also said the setback requirement, which amounts to almost a quarter mile from a neighboring residence or livestock facility, would be a project killer and put a huge limit on the amount of space energy companies and landowners have to work with. The larger you make that distance, that means the more farmland we actually have to go out and try to work on because you're taking that farmland by the homeowner, by the livestock facility out of use. We've got to go acquire that someplace else. That means ultimately you're raising the cost, said Christopher Rance, a lobbyist for the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association and Next Era Energy. Matt Gronenwald, a lobbyist for the Iowa Farm Bureau, said the organization is in support of the bill, but it would support restricting only large-scale projects of 40 acres or more. Samantha Peterson, a farmer from Benton County who spoke at the meeting, said she supports the bill but is mostly concerned with utility-scale projects as well. I think this is a good place to start, to set a statewide regulation or rules, and to really protect non-participating neighbors like my family and others around the state, and just giving us some peace of mind and a seat at the table when these large projects are composed, she said. Zumbach said during the meeting that he is willing to amend the bill to address some of the issues raised, including adjusting the setback distance. He also said he would consider allowing a neighbor to sign a waiver to void the distance requirement. Whether these numbers are the right numbers or not, we don't know that, he said, but we can have that discussion and numbers are movable. New Iowa Democratic Leader, Caucus Demise Not Done Deal the new leader of the Iowa Democratic Party has not given up on Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation presidential caucuses, even as a vote to strip away that lofty status looms in mere days. Rita Hart, a former state legislator and candidate for Congress and lieutenant governor who is just two days into her tenure as state party chair, told Iowa Reporters Monday that she believes Iowa Democrats' first-in-the-nation caucus status is not yet dead and that she plans to work toward a caucus solution that is in Iowa's best interest. Democrats' National Leadership Committee is scheduled to meet this weekend in Philadelphia to vote on a proposal from its Rules and Bylaws Committee to overhaul the party's presidential nominating calendar, including revoking Iowa's prized first-in-the-nation status for Democratic candidates, which the state has held for 50 years. Hart believes there is still hope for Iowa. This is certainly not a done deal, Hart told reporters in her first news conference as state party chair. I'm hoping that we have some good news soon on that front. Hart said she has been speaking with the people who have been involved with the National Party's debate over its calendar. She said she believes it's important that Democrats and Republicans are working together for Iowa's best interest. Iowa's first-in-the-nation status is one thing that Iowa Democrats and Republicans have worked on together in the past. Republican Party of Iowa State Chair Jeff Kaufman has worked with Hart's predecessors to maintain that leadoff spot for both parties. National Republicans have kept the same nominating calendar for the 2024 cycle, meaning Iowa Republican caucuses will remain first in the nation. Under the proposal on which the Democratic National Committee will vote this weekend, which was proposed by President Joe Biden, the first states to vote in Democrats' presidential primaries would be, in order, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, 
Georgia, then Michigan. Hart said the caucuses were one of the reasons she got into politics. When I look back at the things that brought me to this political career, one of these things is how I was able to sit in my parents' home and listen to the caucuses of both the Republicans and the Democrats that were held in our homes, she said. I think it's just a very rich tradition. On the election front, Hart assumes party leadership at a time when Republicans hold both the governor's office and the majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature, all but one statewide elected office and all six seats in Iowa's congressional delegation. Hart said the party should continue to organize in the Democratic strongholds, like Des Moines and Cedar Rapids metro areas, but also needs to expand its organizing footprint to rural areas. She acknowledged that will require more resources, in other words, better fundraising. I'm very focused on rural Iowa. I think it's really important that everybody in this state is given a voice. And the thing that we do in organizing to make sure that we get our democratic message out to all 99 counties is so important, Hart said. It's not easy to do the hard work of organizing because we do have to establish priorities and we have to assess what we have that is possible when it comes to resources. So I tell you this, that we are going to maintain the areas that we know are so important for us going forward, but we're also going to have great outreach to areas that may have needed more attention than they have received in the past. Iowa Ag Department seeks more money to fight bird flu. The Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship is asking for more state money to prepare for and respond to foreign animal illnesses. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag asked a budget subcommittee Monday to double the state appropriations going to that cost from $750,000 to $1.5 million. The boost would allow the department to better respond to threats like bird flu and African swine fever, Nag said. With the new money, the department would hire more employees and buy equipment for responding to African swine fever, he said. The department also is asking for increased funding for meat and poultry inspection, weights and measures, pesticide investigations, and the soil and land conservation's cost share. Governor Kim Reynolds' proposed budget would keep the general fund appropriations to the Agriculture Department the same, but would add $500,000 from a separate fund to cover the equipment costs for foreign animal illness response. Auditor urges oversight of school activity funds. State Auditor Rob Sand issued a recommendation that school districts conduct oversight of student activity funds. Sand said he decided to make the recommendation after his office discovered a substantial amount of misuse of student activity funds. Sand's office said it identified more than $268,000 in misused student activity funds over the past decade, largest shares of which were attributed to undeposited collections, improper disbursements, uncollected facility usage fees, and improper deposits. This serves to remind school district board of directors, faculty, and staff that student activity funds are public funds are the property of the school district and must be used to benefit the public, Sand said in his statement. ABC News Robin Roberts to present Morningside's Wait Lecture. Robin Roberts, co-anchor of ABC News Good Morning America, will deliver the 2023 Wait Lecture on April 19th. The event, which is taking place in conjunction with the inauguration of Morningside University's 13th president, Dr. Albert Mosley, begins at 5.30 p.m. in the University Epley Auditorium at 3625 Garrison Avenue. Robin Roberts is an incredibly accomplished individual with an inspiring and motivating message. I am thrilled to have her be part of the inauguration celebration. Moreover, she also has a unique connection to Morningside as her late father, 
Air Force Colonel Lawrence Roberts is a 1957 graduate of Morningside. We were fortunate enough to host Miss Roberts on campus almost two decades ago to honor her father and deliver the 2005 Waite Lecture, and we look forward to welcoming her once again, Mosley said in a statement. Under Roberts' leadership as co-anchor of Good Morning America, the broadcast has won numerous Emory Awards for Outstanding Morning Program and the 2017 People's Choice Award for Favorite Daytime TV Hosting Team. In 2014, Roberts Rock launched Rockin' Robin Productions, an independent production company creating original broadcast and digital programming. Current series include the award-winning Thriver Thursday digital series, the Robin Roberts Presents banner a scripted and documentary projects for the Lifetime Television Network, and Turning the Tables with Robin Roberts for Disney+. Plus. Roberts began contributing to Good Morning America in 1995 and was named co-anchor in May 2005. Prior to that, Roberts was a host of ESPN Sports Center and contributed to NFL Primetime. Roberts graduated cum laude from Southeastern Louisiana University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Communication. She was a standout performer on the women's basketball team, ending her career at one of the school as one of the school's all-time leading scorers and rebounder. In 2012, Roberts was named an inductee to the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Roberts is the author of From the Heart, Seven Rules to Live By, and Everybody's Got Something. Her third book, Brighter by the Day, Waking Up to New Hopes and Dreams, debuted last year. Roberts is a native of the Mississippi Gulf Coast and currently resides in New York City. Roberts' father, Colonel Lawrence Roberts, class of 57, received a total of 19 service medals and awards during his distinguished career with the U.S. Air Force. He was one of the famed Tuskegee Airmen during World War II and later served in Vietnam where he won one of his three Legion of Merit medals. The other two came from service at Keys. Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Norman Waite, Jr., a 1986 Morningside graduate and former member of the Morningside University Board of Directors, established the Waite Lecture Series at Morningside University in 1997. He saw it as an opportunity to bring the world to Morningside University students and the community through appearances by nationally and internationally known leaders in business, politics, economics, history, and the media. Lecturers have included journalist Bob Woodward, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, economic humorist Ben Stein, and documentary filmmaker Ken Bird. Ken Burns, I mean. Rod Erlingwine humbled at Sioux City Superintendent Selection. Rod Erlingwine has been selected as Sioux City Community School District's next superintendent. Earlywine is currently serving as an interim superintendent. He was previously the superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Luton's Community School District. I am thankful, I am humbled that they chose me, and I honestly believe I am the best person for the job, and I believe good things will happen for Sioux City Community School District under my leadership, Earlywine said. The school board deliberated in closed session for two and a half hours before voting on, on offering Earlywine a contract in open session Thursday. He was chosen by the board in a six to one vote with Perla Alicorn Flory voting against. Earlywine said he was out running errands when the deliberation was taking place when he was notified the board was about to vote in open session. He said he watched the voting from his car. I was very excited and relieved at the same time, he said. He said the board had a tough decision to make for the students and the community. The other candidate for the position was Giovanni Ponce, the assistant superintendent of high schools for the Houston Independent School District. 
Dan Greenwell said each candidate had different experiences and both would have brought strength to the district, but needed to pick one. He said the board at the end came to a consensus. We decided that Dr. Earlywine was our choice. We're excited to have him. He's done great things in the last seven months with this district, Greenwell said. Early Wine and the district will now enter into contract negotiations. Pending the negotiations, he will start July 1st with a three-year contract. Before resigning in February 2022, Early Wine served as superintendent of the Sergeant Bluffluton Community School District for 15 years, and before that he worked for 12 years as Sergeant Bluffluton's middle school principal. He was selected as interim superintendent in April 2022 and officially started in July of 2022. He holds a doctorate in education administration from the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, a specialist degree in educational administration and a bachelor's degree in education from Drake University, and a master's degree in education administration from the University of Northern Iowa. A few of the changes Early Wine has made as interim superintendent includes rebuilding the culture and climate of the school district, putting in new discipline policies, adding reading back in the middle schools, starting to overhaul the special education program and revamping the English language learners program, Greenwell said. Dr. Earlywine, in our opinion, deserved a chance to continue on and to continue to improve and rebuild our district for the next several years, he said. During public interviews on Wednesday, Earlywine said he officially applied for the superintendent position because of his experience so far with the Sioux City Community School Districts. When he became interim, he did not intend on applying for the full-time position due to turmoil and controversy in the district at the time. What I've learned over the past seven months is this is a very, very good school district, Earlywine said. We have great staff, we have people that truly care about our students, and they want to see our students succeed. A community member asked if Earlywine saw the position as a short-term job or a long-term role. He said there is a misconception that he retired from Sergeant Bluff, but in reality, he resigned because he felt he needed to do something different. I never retired. I'm not ready to retire, Earlywine said. Each of the board members took a moment to discuss the decision that was made. All the board members said both candidates were highly qualified and the board had a very extensive conversation of what the district needed and what the feedback from the community was. Each said it was a difficult decision. Perla Alicorn Flory said all of the board members spent hours of research to come to a decision and took into account all of the feedback from community members, students, parents, and staff. Bernie Scalero said there was a robust discussion weighing the needs of the district and the board did they best, the best they could in the best interest of the community. The district received 23 applications for the position vacated by Paul Gosman in June 2022 for a job as a superintendent of the Lincoln Public Schools. With the help of the recruiting firm hired by the district, GR Recruiting, the, board's, the school board narrowed its down to five candidates who they interviewed, eventually narrowing it down to the current two. Potts and Earlywine participated in public interviews on Wednesday, as well as interviews with the school board and special interest groups such as students and teachers. The search began in the fall of 2022 with community surveys, followed by in-person input sessions with district staff, students, and the public. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 31st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. We'll now move to the sports section, starting with uh, Morningside uh, University wrestling team. Morningside University went 3-0 to zero in duels Saturday to, uh, to claim the 2022-23 Great Plains Athletic Conference Championship 
The Mustangs, which finished the GPAC duels season with an 8-0 record, will host the Dave Edmonds Open on Saturday before competing in a duel at Ottawa, Kansas on February 7th. Morningside started Saturday by running the table against Hastings in a school record tying 60-0 victory. The Mustangs followed with a 41-7 victory over Midland before concluding the GPAC duel season with an 18-16 nail-biter against Doan. The Mustangs recorded six pins in the day opening duel from Ben, ben Schmitz, Nicholas Walters, John Deemer, Caleb Connor, Samuel Moore, and Hunter de Jong. Evan Shell, Noah Stikeso, Hayden Wempen, and Alex Van Dyke completed the perfect duel, receiving forfeits. Morningside bested the Broncos in less than 25 minutes with only two matches reaching the second period and none making it past the five-minute mark. Moore's pin took just 40 seconds, well off Morningside's fastest fall record of 13 seconds. Shell and Vacquist kicked off the Midland duel with a pair of pins, with Walters receiving a forfeit. Deemer broke the streak of six-point wins as he and Xander Ernst earned a pair of major decisions. Sisko won a 10-5 decision sandwiched between the pair of majors. Wempen and Jacob Jarabek concluded Morningside scoring against Midland with a pair of falls, pounding nails in the Midland's coffin and guaranteeing that the Doan duel would be for all the marbles. The Mustangs and Doan's Tigers exchanged decisions early in the pair's duel, as you would expect from a pair of 7-0 teams that both appear in the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics Top 20 with ranked wrestlers throughout their lineups. Doan had held opponents to just 9 points in GPAC duels coming into the match. Vacquist won the decision of, at 133 pounds, answering Doan's win at 125. The Tigers would win a major decision at 141 and a decision at 149 to open a 10-3 lead before Stitesco received a medical forfeit at 157, closing the gap to 10-9. Ernst, Connor, and Wempen each fought for decisions, giving Morningside an 18-10 edge with two matches left. Doan fought hard to get a decision at 197, where an undersized Alex Van Dyke almost was able to put points in Morningside's column. He did the job, though, all but securing the Mustang win. The Mustangs couldn't give up more than a major decision in the heavyweight match if they wanted to take the season trophy home. Hunter de Young suffered a similar fate to Van Dyke, falling in a hard-fought decision. Like Van Dyke, though, his efforts were enough to keep Doan from stealing the win. And now for some business news. New strip mall going up in Dakota Dunes. A new strip mall is going up in Dakota Dunes on the eastern end of the Interstate 29 interchange at Two Rivers Drive. Yankton, South Dakota-based Slowway Management, developer of the Holiday Inn Express and Convention Center that opened along Interstate 29 in Dakota Dunes in 2018, is also the developer of the strip mall. The strip mall is adjacent to the hotel. The roughly 14,000-foot a square foot strip mall has five tenant spaces, said Lauren Savanda, a business analyst with Slowly Management Construction. Construction began in 2021, she said, and should be finished any day. The construction work was handled by Yankton-based SRK Development, a sister company of Slowway. The building has generated interest from potential tenants, said Tim Swanson, a broker with Dunes Realty, who's representing the property, but none of the prospective businesses is ready to make an announcement. We've had a number of inquiries, some that we are currently working with, Swanson said. 
The developers are hoping to attract a restaurant tenant for the building's 5,000 square foot heavily windowed end cap. That would complement not only the hotel, but the entire area, Swanson said of the restaurant idea. The end cap on the opposite end of the building can accommodate a drive-up window, which could be useful for any type of business, he added. Sonography Studio allows women to watch their babies grow in HD. When Lily Frank was attending graduate school for midwifery and pregnant with her first child, she would peek on the boy, now 18 months old and named Lux, with an ultrasound machine. I watched him grow from inside of me every single week, and it was fascinating to see how much they grow, Frank recalled. That experience sparked a desire in Frank. She wanted to give women access to more than two ultrasounds, generally the standard during a normal pregnancy. Five months ago, Frank opened the Sonography Studio at 1119 4th Street. The business offers high-definition prenatal imaging, IV hydration, and early gender determination services in a spa-like setting, along with a baby boutique that features clothing, toys, and other items. Appointments range from 10 to 45 minutes, depending on the ultrasound options clients choose. Since the sonography studio doesn't accept insurance, all services are private pay. Frank cautions that she isn't a substitute for actual prenatal care. She said she's here to let women see their babies more often. It's a fun, cool environment. You see the baby on the big screen, Frank said as she sat by her midway. Mindway ultrasound system in a dimly lit room. Soft music played in the background. Frank has 12 years experience in nursing. She started out in the intensive care unit and then moved to the emergency department. She most recently worked in labor and delivery and just really fell in love with it. Frank received her associate degree from St. Luke's College and then went back to school to get her bachelor's degree in 2018. I was a critical care resource nurse, meaning I went to labor and delivery, ER, and ICU. I was trying to figure out if I wanted to be a nurse anesthesist or a midwife. It just kind of led to loving delivering babies and being around women and just pregnancy in general, she said. After obtaining her bachelor's degree in nursing, Frank enrolled in a nursing midwifery master's degree program at the University in Cincinnati. She graduated in 2021. While I was in grad school, I became pregnant for the first time. I had access to an ultrasound machine every day of my clinical experience, so I would just peek on my baby all the time, she said. It's a non-invasive tool. It doesn't hurt the baby at all. It doesn't hurt the mom at all. It's just a really good way to see your baby. After earning her master's degree, Frank flew out to Monterey, California, and took a two-day course for midwives that specialize in sonography and ultrasound. Today, she has clients traveling from a 200-mile radius of Sioux City for her services. Sioux Falls women come to me all the time. I get people from Sheldon, Storm Lake, all over Nebraska, and of course Sioux City, she said. I would say the demand is definitely there. I have been very, very busy. At the sonography studio, appointments aren't limited to the mother and just a lone guest. Frank said she's had women come with their parents or their partner's parents as well as the baby's siblings. That's been really fun to see little kids' reactions and the grandparents are just blown with the um, technology, she said. So that's been really fun too, just to have that bonding experience with your family members before the baby arrives.
Frank said it's also the little things that she does that makes a big difference. She warms up the ultrasound gel before placing it on a woman's belly, and she wipes it off with a warm washcloth at the end of the session. The technology Frank uses, she said, is the latest and greatest. She said her mind ray ultrasound system captures babies' faces really well. Most machines, they just do a 3D, which is like this more yellow color and 5D is creating like there's a twilight spotlight transparency that just allows different highlighting on the baby's face to appear more realistic she said. Frank has an app that clients can use to access photos and videos from their ultrasounds. It's just always on their phone which is nice. Frank can also take a recording of a baby's heartbeat and place it inside a stuffed animal from her baby boutique. With a membership to the sonography studio, Frank said women can see their babies via ultrasound twice a week. She said this option has helped many moms who have anxiety from a previous loss. If it is an IVF baby, there's a lot of women that experience infertility that are, that kind of are in the dark. They don't talk a lot about it. So when they come to me, they're just so excited because they just get that peace of mind, she said. Frank said she has the ability to notice when something's off, too, and can refer clients back to their doctors. The sonography studio offers IV hydration services to women who, for example, might be experiencing nausea early on in their pregnancies. However, said Frank said clients don't have to be pregnant to receive IV hydration. They just have to be a girl. I have a baby drip that's really good for the first trimester for nausea and vomiting, she said. That's just different packages that people can choose from. There's a brain drip that's really good for headaches. Clients sit in a massage chair with a warm blanket and watch Netflix while they receive their IVs, a process that takes 30 to 45 minutes. A lot of people leave feeling way better, Frank said. We'll now move to some entertaining entertainment news, Remembering Rock's Pioneers. February 3rd, 1959 was thought to be the day the music died. Surprisingly enough, the music sprang back to life the very next night at Sioux City Shores Acres Ballroom, now the home of the Sioux City Community Theater. People thought the infamous winter dance party rock and roll tour of 1959 ended when Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson were killed in a plane crash following their performance at Clear Lake, Iowa Surf Ballroom, Seven Garabedian explained, close to 64 years later. Even though the other performers were devastated, the promoters wanted the tour to continue. With less than 24 hours notice, the then 18-year-old Frankie Vavilon found himself on the Shore Acres Ballroom stage as Holly's last-minute replacement for the Sioux City gig. The show must go on, right? Actually, the tour was a disaster even before Holly, 22, Valens, 17, and Richardson, 28, died during the 24-day, 24-city tour, which began January 23, 1959, in Milwaukee. It was a bad winter, even by Midwest standards, Garabedian explained. The tour bus kept breaking down, and the musicians kept on getting sick. Garabedian is an expert on the ill-fated winter dance party tour, even though it occurred long before he was born. My interest in the era began when my favorite radio station changed to an all-oldies format, the Quebec Canada native explained. As a kid of the 80s, that usually meant the station would play 70s music. Instead, this radio station started playing music of the 50s and the 60s. Already a fan of movies like American Graffiti and TV shows like Happy Days, Garabedian 
fell in love with the music of the pioneers of rock and roll. Years later, he and co-producer James McCool made a documentary series called The Winter Dance Party Tapes, which included such musicians as Waylon Jennings, Carl Bunch, and Dion from Dion and the Belmonts. More sub significantly, Garaby Dion interviewed many of the fans who flocked the Surf Ballroom and Sioux City Shore Acres Ballroom to see their favorite performers. Indeed, he plans to be back in Sioux City for the 65th anni 65th anniversary of the crash. Right now, he wants to continue his research while updating his documentary. The fans who were teenagers in the 1950s were in their 70s when I interviewed them, he said. They still remember the event as if it had happened yesterday. During the course of the interviews, Gerbedian befriended many of the Winter Dance Party attendees. In fact, he makes a pilgrimage to Iowa every chance he gets. That included a 2019 visit to the Sioux City Community Theater. There is a famous photo of Frankie Avalon looking up at the photos of Holly, Valance, and the Big Bopper the day after the plane crash, Garabedian explained. The community theater has the same picture framed, and it is located at the same spot where Frankie was photographed. It was eerie how much has changed and how little had changed, he continued. So, did the dance did the music really die on February 3, 1959? Singer Don McLean obviously thought so. His song, American Pie, revolved around the infamous Clear Lake, Iowa crash. However, Garabedian conceded that the death knell of rock and roll was premature. When I spoke to the teenagers who saw the Winter Dance Party concerts, it seemed like such an innocent time, he said. The performers were so down-to-earth and approachable. After the crash, the innocence went away, Garabedian continued. The civil rights movement was picking up speed and the Vietnam War was just around the corner. As the 1950s gave way to the 1960s, doo-wop, teen idols, and girl groups replaced the rock and rollers. This was before the British Revolution brought the Beatles onto the American shores. Influenced by guys like Buddy Holly, the Beatles were the next wave of rock stars. Yet, for people like Garibaldian, the sounds of Holly, Valens, and the Big Bopper still represents the soul of rock and roll. They may be gone, he said, but they will never be forgotten. And so now the, this documentarian would like to talk to with anyone who either attended the Winter Dance Party shows or knows somebody who did. And he can be reached at 514-970-1959 or 514-931-6959 or email address at 71, so that's S-E-V-A-N-1 at simpatico.ca. And another uh, music story um, about something that happened last Friday night. By day, Jesse Mason makes commercials as promotions manager at KCAU-TV. But at night, the 39-year-old Bellevue, Nebraska native can be found behind the decks as DJ Jesse Jamal. Mason will be spinning the tracks during a house music dance party beginning at 6 p.m. Friday at the Sioux City Conservatory of Music. The show, which is open to all audiences of all ages, will also include a mini film festival as well as an art show featuring the works of Alex Lee. So, how did a mild-mannered creative service guy find himself manning a DJ session? Initially, it began through his love of director Quentin Tarantino films. When I was a kid, I didn't notice movie soundtracks until I saw the way Tarantino would use music, Mason explained. Tarantino would use a certain song that would capture, perfectly capture the mood of a scene. He did it so well that music would become a part of the drama. 
That certainly sparked the creative juices of a self-admitted music and movie nerd. I studied film in college and started making music videos while I was still a student, he said. Very much a part of the 90s house music scene, Mason gravitated toward the work of the Chemical Brothers, Basement Jacks, and Daft Punk. Don't get me wrong, I love all types of music, he insisted, but house music just has an energy to it. After beginning a career in TV, Mason took his video-making skills and applied them to advertising spots. Once you think about it, most commercials combine music and action, he said. In other words, it can be considered a 30-second music video. Yet Mason didn't try his hand at DJing until five years ago. I was able to go to the Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival in Manchester, Tennessee that year, and electronic dance music sets blew me away, he remembered. Mason began making party mixes from favorite bands, gifting them to friends. It wasn't until the COVID-19 pandemic hit in 2020 that he got seriously into DJing. Guess everybody has their own pandemic project, Mason said with a chuckle. My project was to learn how to DJ. Once pandemic restrictions were lifted, he started booking gigs as DJ Jesse Jamal. Jamal is my middle name, but it also works as a DJ name name, Mason said. Since then, he has been crafting soundtracks to fit the mood of a crowd. This is exactly what a DJ does, uh, Mason explained. If Quentin Tarantino uses music to enhance what's on a movie screen, a DJ does the same thing during a party scene. While he uses music from all genres and eras for his dance mix, Mason is surprised at how well the songs of the 1990s fit. They say that everything gets a comeback, and it seems like the 90s is being revived, he said. What, which makes sense, since the decade was a fertile time for house music remixes. Indeed, certain songs, like Everything But the Girls Missing, were better known for their dance remix than they were for the original source material. According to Mason, that is the magic of DJing. You're blending songs together as if they're all a non-stop continuous beat, he said. Sometimes this musical blend is achieved by a word in a lyric or even by an identical riff in the song. Mason uses pop star Dua Lipa's 2020 hit, Break My Heart, as a perfect example of developing a mood through a case of selective sampling. There is a moment in Break My Heart which uses a riff that's so similar to the NXS song Need You Tonight that Dua Lupa had to credit songwriters and NXS group members Michael Hunchens and Andrew Ferris as her collaborators, he said. Because Dua Lupa did so much sampling in that song, it ended up with eight songwriters who may have had minimal involvement in his creation. To some extent, that's a sign of the times. DJs and producers like Calvin Harris, Diplo, and Marshmallow are just as well known as singers. If you go to audio streaming sites like Spotify, you'll see a producer's name as well as the name of a performer, Mason said. I think audiences are interested in the behind-the-scenes players of their favorite music. Indeed, that is where Mason wants to take his career. I'd like to work with local talent to make our own music, he suggested. Could DJ Jesse Jamal have the makings to become Sioux City's very own Mark Ronson? The modest Mason wouldn't go that far. I just want to create a perfect party mix that will get people moving, he said. That's what house music is all about. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, my two siblings and I were raised by an abusive, alcoholic father. Predictably, it has adversely affected our mental health adversely. One sibling struggles with alcoholism and substance abuse. The other has a 
uh, personality disorder and cannot maintain stable relationships. I cope with comparatively fewer severe issues, but I still must work hard to sustain a marriage and my career and raise healthy children. It is not easy. My siblings' issues have disrupted my emotional health and family life, which is why I keep them at a distance. Lately, they have expressed feeling abandoned. Other family members call me selfish and say I'm obligated to help them because I'm the successful one. I do feel some guilt for not helping more, as we all survived the same toxic childhood. Yet, my emotional bandwidth is limited. Frankly, people with alcoholism and personality disorders are hard to be around, even if they are family. Is it selfish to prioritize my well-being by maintaining distance from my siblings? Signed, their brother. And Abby responds, your first priority must be your emotional health. Next should be the well-being of your spouse and children and the career that enables you to provide for them. If maintaining some distance from these siblings is selfish, then call it enlightened selfishness. Help them to the extent you can, but do not allow yourself to be emotionally arm-twisted by other relatives who remain on the sidelines. Dear Abby, I've lived in my apartment for almost 10 years and have had the same downstairs neighbor since I moved in. About three years ago, I began noticing an odor coming from her apartment. It's hard to describe other than the worst body odor imaginable. It's so bad that I can't open my sliding door or windows in the summer because the smell drifts into my home. She is not the type of person I can approach about this, no matter how gently I word it. I'm to the point where I feel I should file a complaint with management. It could be a hoarding situation, which could lead to health issues or pests. There are only four units in my building, and I know my other two neighbors would never complain. It would be obvious it was me, which would make it a very uncomfortable living situation. So far, no one else I know has had this had advice, so I'm desperate for any suggestions. Signed, Disgusted in Oregon. Abby responds, Have you spoken to your other neighbors about this? Have they noticed the older too? If any of them tells you yes, then absolutely discuss what has been happening and for how long with the building management company. There may indeed be health and safety issues involved. Could she have a dead animal in there? Please do not remain silent. For everyone's sakes, this should be checked out. And the next letter, I have a friend who is hosting a baby shower for her pregnant daughter. Her daughter lives out of state and I have only met her once. It was a quick and short introduction with no other interaction. I am invited to the baby shower, but I feel uncomfortable with this as I do not know the daughter and will not know anyone at the shower except my friend. Is it proper to be invited to a shower where you do not know the person? Signed, Uncomfortable. And the response, it sounds to me as if the prospective grandmother is trying to spread out her own joy by including at least one of her own friends in the shower guest list. I cannot comment on whether it is proper for you to be invited to this shower. It is, however, proper to respond promptly to an invitation, expressing your appreciation for the invitation as well as your polite regrets, such as, unfortunately, I won't be able to make it, but congratulations, Grandma. I hope everyone has a great and joyful time. And that concludes today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 31st. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you so much for listening.
Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.